Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, after skipping out yesterday, the Prime Minister in the House of Commons today to answer questions about the We Charity controversy. A new Ipsos poll says most Canadians want the Prime Minister to rely less on China. And we've seen a slight uptick in Canada of COVID-19 cases. Is this something to be concerned about or just what we will see as we gradually reopen? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Can I apply for a government grant for a new set of bike tires? I'm burning up the black top. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping us on the air. It is week number 19 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear what you're up to. Love to hear what you're doing. Uh, you can do so. Send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And don't forget uh, Facebook and Twitter. You will find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you. Uh, let's talk about the Prime Minister and the House of Commons and the We Charity controversy. Uh, it was supposed to be in the House yesterday. They're on limited, uh, limited, uh, limited sessions, obviously, due to COVID-19. Uh, but the prime minister wasn't there today because he t- or yesterday because he took a personal day. However, we'll be in there uh, in the house today to answer questions to talk more about all of this. Tim Powers is with us, vice chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, and also very affiliated with his passion of Rugby Canada. Tim, how are you today? Well, Scott, I'm good. Now, last week I was off for a few days and I got savaged by deer flies. So no. trying to feel better. And uh, I've got a question for you. Do you get applause like the Premier does at home every time you finish speaking? Is your son and your, your wife and, and other family members just there clapping you? No. Although Will will add some sound effects when needed. Would you like a big stadium applause or just a little golf clap? Whatever you would like. Yeah, I did think, you know, I I was thinking that at what point, because we remember when the prime minister's press conference started to get a little off course. uh, And I think you're uh, quite accurately pointed out the they are starting to do the same thing with the premier. These are looking a little less like a press conference and more like a campaign uh, style tour. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, it is a bit of a campaign-style tour, uh, but it's good that the Premier... Look, it's good any leader gets out uh, in the... Uh into their province or into their country, particularly right now, to try and create a sense of normal. But they got to be careful, right? It's a line they've got to try and manage before people like you and I start calling them out. But, but but back to your question about the prime minister and the personal day and yesterday and his appearance today. I mean, I'm not too fussed about him, frankly, taking a personal day yesterday. What I am going to be interested in is what sort of answers he does or doesn't give today about the We Charity uh, and the whole scandal, because it seems every day there's a new bit of of information that comes out that is in contradiction uh, to what the government uh, was telling us about uh, why they initially sole-sourced a contract to the We Charities, and of course now that contract is cancelled. 
Uh, we remember with uh, the the other scandals that he has in, been involved in, ethical uh, questions that he has been involved in, uh, It was uh, a lot of it was him just failing to answer questions that, that kept the story alive for so long. Is that what's happening here? Part of it, and I think John Iveson, the Post columnist, had it well. You know, the, the Prime Minister first tries to, you know, evade and say there's nothing to it and and then tries to attack a little bit then eventually when none of that is working he apologizes and hopes the you know the apology uh will will do the trick the apology hasn't killed this story that apology was what last wednesday or thursday uh we're almost a week into it it's still going um in part because of the committees and because the the, the minority parliament and the committees can keep them going but it seems many are emboldened to dig up all they can on the on the we charity so the prime minister is <laughs> i suspect going to have a rumpy, rough ride for a few more weeks anyway at least so how big is this scandal does it resonate during a pandemic in in the summer months of of, of a canadian summer or uh is this just something that uh, water off the duck uh, off a duck's back when it comes to the average canadian well you hope that duck doesn't get shot either scott i mean if you're in the woods you never know what may happen with the duck if the prime minister's the duck that's going to get shot he's in trouble um well, I, let me give you the only answer that I, I know at the moment. So it is resonating right now. Our polling company, you mentioned at Abacus, released a poll yesterday. And what we found in the poll was, was instructive. So you'll remember, uh, you know, most of the last two or three months, the prime minister had rebuilt the Liberal Party numbers in the horse race. They were up around 40 percent, uh, largely attributed to the credit he was being given and the government was being given for the management of the pandemic. They've dropped four points. Um, they're down in our poll to uh, 36. Uh, his personal approval numbers have dropped. He's still in positive territory, but they dropped 5%. Government approval numbers all dropped. Uh, we asked some very specific questions about we. Uh, we found that at some level, 80% of Canadians are engaged in the story, of 81 actually, 19 are paying no attention to it. Of that 80, nearly 50 are really engaged in it. And those that are really engaged in the story, um, of, of that, of 53% believe that, um, you know, they're believing the opposition framing that we was about helping government friends. 46 are of the view uh, that, no, no, you know, the government was just trying to do its best and sole source the contract. Uh, or, uh, sorry, so provide a sole source contract to make sure kids could, uh, could, could get employment opportunities. Um, but among liberal supporters, we found there was disappointment about all of this. So, it is having an effect right now, uh, more than perhaps the government thought it would, more than maybe some of us analysts thought it would. But we're only at July 21st. is a long time to go in the summer. Thanks be to God. Can they ride it out? Mm, we'll see. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the Prime Minister apologized. Uh, Christia Freeland in the House yesterday again gave a um, an apology for this. Um, is this a mistake or is this a choice? Andrew Shear asked this is, or, or presented this point. This is a choice. This isn't a mistake. I mean, there should have been red flags here, no? 
Yeah, and look, <laughs> and there's more trouble to come, right? There's not, not that the ethics investigations ever amount to anything, but you don't get investigated by the ethics commissioner simply because the, the your partisan opponents have have made you know done good spade work to say you're engaged in skullduggery. You get investigated because the ethics commissioner, the independent officer of parliament. Uh, feels that uh, there's something that he needs to look at. So it's not just Justin Trudeau who's going to be investigated, it's it's Bill Morneau. Now, they don't really have any penalties, but your very specific questions. Look, I think it's important to say it's sorry, but it's it's like anything else. Uh, it's like my four-year-old son who I told on the weekend, stop throwing sand, stop throwing sand. Oh, sorry, Dad. Oh, sorry, Dad. Oh, sorry, Dad. After about the 15th story, I wasn't really believing the stories anymore, and I was still picking sand out of my eyes. Uh, so, you know, th- th- that's what this is akin to. Sorry is good if people believe you mean that you're actually sorry and your behavior is going to change. Where the opposition have opportunity here uh, is, you know, the establishment of a pattern. And this is another example that they cite, and not wrongly, of, you know, the prime minister himself running afoul because of the way he views the world. You got the Aga Khan, you got the Lav scam, you got the trip to India, and it's the third time, uh, again, that he's under investigation by the Ethics Committee. So the, the opposition, other members of government didn't make that happen. He made that happen himself. And that's the thing he's going to want to try and address, and his government's going to try and address. Does this pattern of behavior that, uh, that appears to exist uh, cloud people's view of him when election comes around um at the end of the day is this bigger than say an snc uh, lavalin jody wilson raybould scandal it's a different it's a different topic it's a different issue is it does it yeah, does that resonate because I mean, it does well and, and nothing in, in the end the contract wasn't awarded uh so i, I don't know if it's necessarily going to in the end be about a contract that wasn't awarded as if it's going to be more about a brand. Uh, and now Trudeau's done a great job of dusting off, uh, you know, uh, previous uh, wounds to the brand or blemishes to the brand. Um, but things are going to change a little bit. So Andrew Shear is going to be gone to the breath, blessed relief of many conservatives and other Canadians. A new leader is going to come in for the conservatives. Arguably, if it's Peter McKay and or Aaron O'Toole, the two most likely people to win, they're going to be a bit more seasoned and a bit more polished. Um, so the, the the political competition is going to improve. That doesn't necessarily help Trudeau. He's longer in the tooth in uh, in governing now. The one thing that I think is working for him is he still does very well, and we see this in the abacus polls and the response to the pandemic. But at some point, too, Scott, he's got to cut the checks off, right? Serb's going to run mm. out. How is that, along with all of the brand damage he's going to receive, along with new competition, going to impact the political landscape. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and enjoying an ocean of calamine lotion to ease the pain. <laughs> Tim, you have yourself a... clapping for you, Scott. I clapped. That was pretty good. All right. You take care, Tim. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, COVID-19 has uh, changed life for a lot of us. I can't think of too many people whose lives it hasn't changed or industry or such. Uh, a, new, a new Ipsos poll says that most Canadians want the premier, sorry, the prime minister to rely less on China. You remember it wasn't that long ago that uh, everybody couldn't wait to get a piece of China. That was the golden goose. 
and the attitudes have changed. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business from Gasta University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm fine, thank you. Glad to be with you. And Marvin, I keep forgetting to uh, tell you this every time that I have you on, but we have enjoyed your preserves that you, I think you made these for us last year. Oh. I think I got the last year's version of your raspberry. Was that well, what it was? I haven't made raspberry yet this year, so it has to have been last year. Yeah. Anyway, I, I keep forgetting to tell you about how much we enjoyed it, and uh, good work. Another side of Marvin Ryder we didn't know about. <laughs> and made in Canada, not made in China. There you go. All right. Uh, a new poll, as you know, uh, yep. from Ipsos saying that uh, Canadians want the prime minister to rely less on China. Are you surprised how the tone has changed uh, over the last uh, couple of years, I guess? Yeah, let me come at this a couple of ways, if you don't mind. First, I'm not fussy about the title to that article that says most Canadians think Trudeau should rely less on trade with China because he doesn't really rely on it at all. It's you and I who rely on it. So the heading should be Canadians think Canada should rely less on trade with China. And and I, I yes, I am a little surprised. Clearly, uh, China's had a run, uh, from a Canadian perspective, of terrible news. Uh, canceling the canola contract, canceling the pea contract. Of course, we've got Madame Meng and her extradition hearing, which has then caused the two Michaels to be in jail in China. You've got China cracking down on dissidents in Hong Kong. Uh, China and Huawei, whether they're going to be part of the 5G uh, materials, those sorts of things there. And then China as the, at least according to Donald Trump anyway, the source of the coronavirus and COVID-19, what have you. So it's not at all surprising, given that we've had very little good news about China and lots of bad news about China, that people say, you know, maybe we should try to distance ourselves. And I think that's a lovely sentiment. But it's it's just like me saying to you, you know, Scott, I think you should lose some weight. Wait a minute. Why don't you start with yourself? And, and, <laughs> and in this study, it isn't about Mr. Trudeau doing something or about the premier doing something. The question is to the average person out there, are you prepared to do something? I have this discussion with my students all the time, and they say, oh, no, I, I shop Canadian. I, you know, I go to Canadian Tire. And I say, well, no, no. Canadian Tire is a Canadian retailer, but do you look on the shelf when you pick up a product to see where it's manufactured? Uh, Canadian Tire, and I don't blame them, they carry products from around the world. They source wherever they can. And what a retailer does is they put products on their shelves. Those that sell, they buy more. Those that don't sell, they don't buy any more of it. We vote with our dollars. It, 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 this, this heading, again, bothers me because it seems to imply that Mr. Trudeau needs to take some action, whereas, in fact, it comes down to you and I. If we want to help stimulate the economy, we should make a point of searching out Canadian products, not just Canadian retailers, but Canadian products and patronizing those. But I find when you actually ask people about putting in that kind of effort, they aren't willing to do it. Is that like asking them to stop shopping at Walmart? Yeah, or, or whatever it happens to be. You know, I, I've had people say, well, we need to patronize our, our local uh, uh, restaurants. Let's help out the local restaurants. Well, what is, how are you defining a local restaurant? A Subway franchise, even though ultimately Subway is sort of an American conglomerate, is owned and operated locally. It's a local person who's behind it. So are you doing your due diligence to find out you know, who exactly, where do those products come from? And most people can't be bothered. So it's a, it's a wonderful philosophical comment. 
And and that's why this poll, and it's a good poll, they, there's lots of good information in here about people saying we should reduce our reliance with Beijing. Certainly, uh, a few years ago, the big poll used to say we had to reduce our reliance on the United States. And still today, the United States is our biggest trading partner. Um, but that's why we're doing the free trade deal with the European Union. Let's start talking to other countries around the world and, and getting these free trade agreements everywhere. It's just that at the moment... When people go out and buy products, they are buying Chinese. Where do you see this going, Marvin? Because clearly uh, both sides on this discussion are digging their heels in. Um, uh, there certainly isn't any signs of this going away. And with the aggression against Hong Kong and many countries recently speaking out uh, against severing relations, certain relationships with Hong Kong, um, where is this going? Because this only seems to be increasing. Well, let me start back at the poll, if you don't mind. In the poll, people were asked how they felt Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberal government were handling relations with China. And a majority of people, and it varied depending upon the province, Alberta is a little more negative, other provinces a little more positive, but a majority of people said they thought the Prime Minister was doing the dance very well. But he is in a very difficult spot here. Take a great example is this 5G rollout, the next generation of of communications technology. Huawei is the second largest telecommunications company on the planet. Um, now, the question is, do they get to participate? And the answer could be yes, the answer could be no, and the answer could be, well, partially, we'll let you participate here, but we won't let you participate there. Um, clearly, Donald Trump has said, no, you can't participate in the United States. Uh, Britain had said, well, yes, you can participate, China, but only in these uh, non-strategic kinds of communications, these these less uh, uh, secure communications. You can do that, but you can't do the secure stuff. Now, Britain has changed its mind, and that leaves us as only the one of the five eyes countries. These are the five secure countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States, and Britain, who were the only ones who've not said no. And And I think he's going to wind up saying no to Huawei being part of 5G. But when he does that, you and I should not be surprised if China retaliates. Uh, that is their method of operation. Now, they never say that's why they're doing it. They'll pick on something else. All of a sudden now, oh, you know, your your maple syrup is a little too sweet, so I'm afraid we can't uh, can't bring it in. Or we've, we've discovered there's a some little chemical in there. Oh, we can't bring it in. And, oh, no, it has nothing to do with Huawei. It has to do with that, That's the way they play this game. And we needed the prime minister to have a good backbone as he goes through this. And, and he will do this, but he's got to walk this line. We do want the Michaels released. We do want the Madam Mung case to come to an end. Um, he has said he's not prepared to release her to get the Michaels, and I think that makes great sense. Otherwise, the message you send to other nations around the world is if you want us to give you what you want, just arrest some of our citizens, and we'll give you that. So I, he's, he's got to do this dance. But it's not easy, and I think, in fact, I'll say to you it this way, it'll probably get worse before it gets better. Uh, is China, how is China reacting to its new world image? How is it, how is it reacting to the world's reaction uh, of how it is now presenting itself moving yeah. forward compared to the last 10 years? Well, I, I have been talking about this for 15 years, that uh, sometime in this decade, uh, China will blow past the United States and become the dominant economic power in the world. 
And my question had been in the last 15 years, how is China going to handle that power? We know how America has handled that power. America's had this dominant economic power for nearly a century. They were not the dominant economic power in 1900, but at some point, you know, in around 1930 or so, America went past Britain and became the dominant economic power in the world. And they have been a bit of a bully on the world market, no doubt about it. You know, uh, if, if you play the game the way America liked, they rewarded you. And if they didn't, they, they had their way of showing it. Um, and the question was, was China going to do the same thing? Up until just recently, China has stayed in America's shadow. And on issues take like North Korea, I would think China could have a, a key role in trying to shape North Korea. But they've said, no, no, United States, you go first, you handle it. They, you know, you're the big daddy here. We, we don't know enough about this. And they've stayed on the back burner. But ultimately, when they become the dominant economic power in the world, they're going to have to start to step forward uh, and show us how they're going to use the power. And to date, They've shown us that they're going to use that power in, in actually kind of nasty ways, behind-the-scene ways. Uh, and that's another reason why we haven't quite let them into all the clubs. For instance, we talk about the G7 nations, the seven largest economies in the world, but there's a clear missing country there, and that's China. We're the, the seventh uh, in that group of seven countries. But honestly, we're about the ninth <laughs> biggest economy in the world. China surpasses us, but they're not in the club. And why aren't they part of the club? Well, they haven't shown us that they're going to do this in some respectful manner. And I think that's an interesting question over the next decade. How is China going to handle this power? To date, they have been an even bigger bully than we've seen America in the last century. And, and I'm wondering if that's the new tone or whether they're going to have to mature uh, with all that responsibility. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. I will. Let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News, uh, his latest commentary. Uh, the trade bonanza with China, a bust. Canada must look elsewhere. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for the time. We hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, I was just talking with Marvin Ryder, business professor at McMaster uh, University. We were talking about how the attitude towards China has changed. Um, are they aware that what they once had, they're slowly, slowly eating away at, that, that the world opinion is changing of them very quickly? Well, I think it's not even slow anymore, Scott. I think it's quickly eroding. And I don't think they give a damn, if you'll pardon my French, uh, they they don't really care. They seem insensitive. Uh, we saw this first uh, with the South China Sea, with this brazen, huge land claim, and even perhaps before that with their treatment of the Tibetan Chinese and some of the things they trade on in Hong Kong. Uh, trade on in Hong Kong. More recently, there's Hong Kong. Uh, there's uh, the reaction to the Meng um, extradition process in Vancouver which has been to kidnap two Canadians and also use trade, canola, pork, beef uh, bans and partial bans and whatnot. And uh, then the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. And they have terrible relations now with Sweden, with much of the European Union, with Australia, with Japan over the East China Sea and also over some trade matters. And uh, they don't seem to care. They, they seem to just go on and on offending everybody. The latest on the list would be India. Um, their relationship with India has always been a bit strained, but 
the club war, the war with stones and clubs up at the top of the Himalayas a few weeks ago. Um, and it certainly looks as if it was uh, a Chinese aggression, a Chinese attack that caused uh, the mayhem up there. So all of these things indicate that China really doesn't care. I think it sees an opportunity with the coronavirus. So what we've seen in the last few months is an acceleration with the United States, uh, for example, not being able to deploy one of its aircraft carriers for about a month or six weeks out of Guam uh, with American uh, obsession with fighting each other over uh, the coronavirus internally in the U.S. politically. And then Italy, France, Spain had very big problems with the coronavirus. All of these things have, uh, in the Chinese view, I think, given them an opportunity to grab what they can when they can. And it worked with the South China Sea, Scott, so uh, I think they're trying more. We're going to hear so much about China. I don't know if your uh, listeners are already tired of China or not, but it is inevitable that we can't even predict what the issues will be, Scott, but we will be talking about outrageous actions by China for the next few years. Uh, it seemed that they weren't as insensitive as you put it in the last few decades. Uh, will this uh, will this new uh, new approach fail moving forward, or have they got to the point where we're big enough now, we don't care what anybody thinks, we've got the edge, and could we not see that coming? Well, I think it it started uh, um, a bit after the death of Mao Zedong. China, after that, took the line that they would be quiet while building up their economy. But since Xi was elected as the president a couple of years ago and head of the Communist Party, there's been a ruthlessness to the Chinese policy. His ideas about China as a great nation and what that means are much different. And the West, I still think, has some pretty good options, but we're not very good at piecing them together. Uh, we in Canada, for example, believe greatly in multilateralism. We've spoken about that for decades. But on China, we tend to deal with China unilaterally. And so do our allies. When they ban our canola, Australia steps up and will take uh, will we'll take that market share. Now, Australia is being banned because of barley. Canada's taking that market share. The United States had problems with lobster. Canada took that share. They're dividing and conquering us all the time. And if we were resolute collectively together, uh, it, it would sure help. And I think we're starting finally to see that. There's the intelligence grouping, the Quad, India, Japan, the United States and Australia, why Canada doesn't belong beats me. Uh, it, it, the Trudeau government has had no interest in this. But there's that, and also the European Union now is moving against China on a number of fronts, including Huawei and G5, which is also Canada now is the outlier, the only major country that can't seem to make up its mind. Germany maybe is the other one uh, about Huawei. And uh, if we are resolute and we hang together, uh, China runs out of options because they're a trading nation and they're building their wealth on the backs of sales two countries such as Canada and many others. If we hang together, we, we, we can get things more on our terms. How does the Prime Minister square this circle? I mean, obviously, he has been uh, very um, 
he's been taking advantage of opportunities there. Uh, we certainly know the position that John McCallum had and, and other members of his government. Your article says that the whole uh, the whole idea w- was a bust. The trade bonanza w- was a bust. Is this because the world was naive to think that you could hug the communism out of China, or is this because their position has changed, as you earlier suggested? I think it's a bit of both, but there was this idea in the West that if we traded a lot with China, they would see the advantages in treating people humanely. They would see the advantages of uh, civic discourse, uh, the rule of law. In fact, the opposite has happened. Every time they make a buck, they're they're even uh, harder to deal with. And that presents uh, a real conundrum for countries uh, such as Canada and uh, and their allies right now they're very emboldened as for trade with china being a bust that was the headline they put on the piece and it's not so much as it's a bust as we are not getting the bonanza we expected we thought that this was the way to nirvana that china would easily replace the united states as a big trading partner the fact of the matter is the united states is still far 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 more important to the Canadian economy than China is. And we have options to replace uh, um, China in Asia alone, let alone doing more in Africa or South America or whatever. And and in Asia, uh, the Japanese, the Indians, the Vietnamese all want to trade much more with Canada. They want to literally double trade with Canada. Uh, There's Taiwan, of course, as well. And then smaller countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, South Korea is a very dynamic economy. We have all kinds of options in Asia, but our thinking, sort of like with the United States, and it's not just the government, it's business people, is it's easy. We'll just deal with the United States. That was, We were a trading nation, but really with only one country. Now we seem to have thought, well, we'll be a trading nation, but really with only two countries. And I think we'd be much smarter, as the Germans have been, in diversifying trade, having 10 or 15 or 20 strong economic partnerships, it seems to me, beats one or two colossal uh, ones where one of the partners can at any time say the tourists or the students aren't coming or we're banning your agricultural products. You know, they even uh, have been looking at our lobsters and saying that they may be carrying coronavirus. Huh. Is it too late? Is China already too interwoven in our economy? Are we already too dependent on them? Well, I read in some places that that is the case. That is the case. I am not an economist. I look at this mostly from my extensive travels around the world, uh, 35 years living abroad, but also a lot of that time in Asia, including a fair bit of time in China itself. The way I see it, we can still move back or, or just stay at the level we are at. I'm not talking about no trade with China. I'm talking about trade with China where they don't abuse us and where if they threaten us with something We have other options in our pocket that we can immediately go to or ones that are already doing things for us. And I think we need a much more creative foreign trade policy with Asia. We've got to work a lot harder. Uh, The China part, the United States, the American part was pretty easy for a while. But now we see the limitations with China, not the limitations on their economy. It is growing. It is going to be a huge, huge deal. But to think that we're going to get somehow a fair share or a bigger than fair share 
is, I think, madness. And we, we need to look at other options. The Canadian public, you know, the Ipsos poll that's just been done with, with Global shows mm-hmm. quite emphatically that the Canadian public is way ahead of the government on this. That poll found 82% of Canadians want less trade with China. Uh, to me, an astonishing figure, 38% of Canadians want no trade with China. They want us to sever all the ties. Well, I think, although I'm not big on China at all, that that's too much. But it shows that the public feels much more strongly about this than the government. We've had fanboys. You uh, t- talked about Mr. McCallum, who went to be our ambassador there. Now Dominic Barton, our current ambassador. They're fanboys for China. They are very close to the Chinese. They think really it's madness to miss out on this opportunity. And they still uh, hold a sway to a considerable degree in Ottawa. So do some of our big uh, business groups. But it will change. It will change because our politicians in particular are susceptible to public opinion. We're going to have an election in the next 12 or 18 months. And if the Trudeau government is way behind the population on China and what we should do with it, then for maybe the first time in a very long time, foreign policy will be a big Mm. issue. And let's not forget where coronavirus came from and what China did in February. That's why Australia's in trouble with them, because it demanded an international uh, investigation into China. And so China slapped all kinds of tariffs on them, including barley. And then the Canadians, of course, immediately went and tried to get the barley thing for themselves. Matthew, I've got to stop it there. We're simply out of time. Matthew Fisher with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute contributor with Global News. And, of course, you can read us his latest column on our website. Matthew, thanks so much. Be well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been uh, chatting a lot about, uh, obviously, uh, post-COVID-19 coming down the backside of the curve. Unfortunately, we're starting to see a slight uptick uh, in parts of the country. Uh, 203 new cases in Ontario. That's the highest single-day increase uh, in about three weeks. Only one death. That's the, uh, the good news. And then, of course, overseas chatter of a vaccination. Let's bring in uh, Redmond Shannon. Quick report here from our Europe correspondent for Global News on uh, the developments yesterday regarding a vaccine. This one is standing out because of the partnership involved. Oxford University, a worldwide educational institute that everybody knows of with a, a great pedigree in research, teaming up with AstraZeneca, a major pharmaceutical company, and the UK government plowing in a lot of money into this vaccine. It, if this vaccine is mass-produced, has an advance order of 100 million doses. That's the population of the UK is 60 million. So that's almost two doses for every person in the UK should this eventually make the market. Yeah, yeah. well, when it comes to side effects, some side effects were reported. In fact, quite a, a high proportion of people who were um, given this uh, to proposed vaccine uh, said that they have fatigue or headaches but paracetamol seemed to be enough to treat it. So quite relatively mild side effects, some a small number of people um, reporting other small side effects too, but it seems like it's within the bounds of what's acceptable for a vaccine. All right, that's Redmond Shannon, Global News Europe correspondent uh, in regard to a vaccine information that came out yesterday. As I mentioned, a slight uptick in cases uh, in Canada right now, let's bring in Craig Jenny, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases, Department of Critical, Medi- uh, Critical Care Medicine at the University of Calgary. Craig, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, yes, uh, glad to be with you. 
How concerned are you about what we're seeing, uh, not only in your province, but ours too, uh, about an uptick? And again, this is post-reopenings. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think now's the time to, you know, maybe note of these these cases and and start watching closely and, and unfortunately be ready to move back in if necessary with restrictions. So obviously we don't want to see cases climbing. Uh, the good news is they don't appear to be this, this doubling every two or three days, which which is good. So this is a slower growth, but it is still going in the wrong direction. And the real fear is if we're seeing a, a small increase right now, where are we in two weeks or three weeks as you point out new reopenings come online. If we're already seeing a small uptick now, will these additional uh, services and activities further drive those virus numbers up? Uh, was this to be expected as we had a gradual reopening? I remember some experts saying that that could be the second wave is the series of hot spots that come later on. Yeah, this is following so far exactly what we would have predicted. I think it's really important to, to keep in mind that although we did a fantastic job of flattening the curve, we unfortunately are unable to eliminate the virus entirely from the community. So as a result, there will still always be some level of viral transmission. And really the key is to identify where those events are, where that viral spreading is, moving quickly and hopefully get people into self-isolation uh, and contact tracing before each of these little flare-ups becomes a big spreader event. Are you confident that uh, we now have the supplies, con- whether it's uh, PPE, whether it's contact tracing, uh, that we have the systems in place, that as these little flare-ups start, we can control them? Well, I think this is really a mixed bag of, of good and bad. I think we have the infrastructure in place. I, I think, and unfortunately, here in Alberta, we're starting to see a little bit of shortage in, in technical uh, uh, skills or, or people that are able to run the assays. So we've gone from during the peak of numbers here in Alberta doing three, four, maybe 5,000 tests a day to several days over the last week where we've been requesting to do more than 7,000 tests uh, in a day. So this is pushing the actual limits of, of manpower we have here in the province, although the technology is in place. The other side is, although we have a fantastic, both in Ontario and in Alberta, contact tracing uh, infrastructure that has worked extremely well, it's really critical to remember that contact tracing is efficient if the people that are infected have had relatively few contacts in the community. So when we were under a, a full restriction and really only essential services were open, it was fairly easy for people to tell the contact tracers who they may have come in contact with. I went to the grocery store and then came home, or I went to the pharmacy and then came home. Now with people going about lives in very much a normal fashion, taking transit, going to work, going shopping, maybe going to dinner after work, the amount of contacts that have to be followed up and and the number of people they may not even know they came in contact with goes up dramatically. It makes contact tracing much more difficult. Uh, How do you explain the uptick that you're experiencing in Alberta, similar to what we have here? Is this as a result of... Uh, reopening or is this a result of people perhaps relaxing those good guidelines we've all been following for so long? I think it's a combination of both and and we are seeing a very sharp shift in the demographics so we are seeing increased infection in younger people so now in Alberta more than 50 percent of the infections are in people under 40 so this is suggesting that there is uh, this relaxing of the guidelines people are feeling as though if they get sick they're not going to get that sick Um, but these are also very much the age groups that are going for example to the bars and pubs on a Friday night And, and unfortunately we are seeing viral transmission 
because of these. Um, although, to some extent, they are less susceptible to severe disease. They're, they're not bulletproof. We've unfortunately lost Canadians that are you know, under 20 to this virus. But more importantly, these are the people who are spreading the virus to our susceptible populations, and, and mostly by, by accident, but by no intent. But they pick up the virus somewhere at a social event and then do groceries a week later and unfortunately can pass that on to, for example, a senior citizen shopping in the same store. How concerned are you, Craig, uh, with the uh, uptick in young people? Um, are they heeding the advice? Are they, are they getting the message? I think they're getting the message, but I do think that we are seeing very measurable fatigue. And it's understandable. I think most of us would agree we are very tired of this physical isolation and very tired of these, these regulations. But we do have to realize that if we don't follow them, we're going to lose all of the ground we made up. And we don't have to look far. If we look at the United States where people are not wearing masks, where people are gathering in large numbers at restaurants and bars and other social events, we are seeing their hospitals overwhelmed with patients. And even though the fatality rate in younger people is much lower, they still end up in the intensive care unit. They still occupy a bed. They still take health resources away from other people for arguably something that is is fairly preventable. Uh, obviously, um, we're seeing an uptake and in, in an uptick in in these numbers and in, in, in certain parts of the country as well. At what point do we become concerned that uh oh, this is too much, too fast? We got to back it back down. Yeah, that's a great question, and and I think unfortunately, uh, healthcare science might have a different number than than what politics or community may have. For me, I'm I'm starting to get concerned if we don't see these these upticks begin to flatten in the next few days. If they continue to grow, there's a couple problems here. One is everything we're seeing today is really from events that happened two weeks ago. So there, there's this massive delay with, with the coronavirus. So people's activities 10 to 14 days ago are what are, is what is resulting in hospitalizations now. So the question is, what are people's activities today going to mean in two weeks? So if numbers continue to go up, we, we need to be able to act and we need to be able to predict the future. The other side of this, unfortunately, is... You know, if we had to make decisions today whether schools reopen, I think most jurisdictions in the pro- in the country, as well as within the provinces of Ontario and Alberta, would be able to safely reopen schools. If, however, we keep this uptick over the next six weeks before September 1st, we may have a much different situation with can we reopen schools and can we go about our, our lives as normal when summer vacation is over. Craig, we're certainly hearing a lot about bars and, and, and just as you said with the younger demographic and such. Is there a way to safely keep bars open or is this just an accident waiting to happen? There are some mechanisms we can use. Unfortunately, they really are difficult and they really are not welcome by, by both the bar and, and by the, the patron. But we have seen, for example, communities here in Alberta have had great success with uh, hard curfews earlier in the evening. So you can go out and maybe have a beer after work, but you're not going to be staying in the bar on Friday night till 2 in the morning. Um, we also have uh, had better results when we were limiting capacity uh, more severely, so uh, below 50% of normal capacity. In Alberta, we've backed off on those regulations, and, and we've now stated as long as tables are a certain distance apart, you can still have people within the establishment. So we, we need to reduce overall capacity. 
the difficult part is the things that work best in the community, uh, physical separation, wearing a mask, hand washing, these really are, are not practical in a bar. Uh, I mean, uh, I think we would all agree it's very difficult to wear a mask if you're headed out for a couple drinks with your friends. So they're almost mutually exclusive. The, the, the really protective things we know work in the community often don't work well in a bar or a restaurant. Uh, chatting about masks, obviously lots of debate around that as well. And as school opens for the kids uh, come September, can you see kids going back to school wearing masks? That's starting to, uh, to be a debate here in Ontario. I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, the, the, the catch is, even if we can get half the kids to do it, that's still half of the people that may not be spreading the virus. So I think we have to look at it. Interesting numbers that are now coming out of the first formal studies of school have suggested that kids age 10 and up actually spread the virus just as efficiently as adults. So although they may not get sick, they will likely be spreading the virus either back to their parents teachers, bus drivers, uh, support staff at the schools, they could all be at risk if the students become infected. So again, we're not, there's not a huge panic about student health, although again, they're not all protected. Some have very adverse infections, but they can very easily pass the virus on just as well as adults can. So this is going to be something that will be very difficult to control. And I'm not sure with schools in Ontario, but in Alberta, the classrooms are so full to begin with, I, I honestly have no idea how we will ensure physical separation between kids, especially at the, the primary school level. Uh, do you think, uh, I mean, in one sense, September is very close. In the terms of a pandemic, it's a long ways away. Uh, when do you think we will know more of what we can do come September, come the first day of school? Will it be two weeks out, a month out? Yeah, I think we're going to start to see some some concrete plans come in early August, so about a month out. I think the biggest thing people have to keep in mind is that these are likely to be very fluid. And, and obviously that's not good news, and I know nobody wants to hear that. But our plan, for example, for the 1st of September may be very different by the time we get to the 1st of November. And we are going to have to be ready to move based on the numbers in the community. And I think the term that's been thrown around is nimble. Uh, and I think that that does present a challenge. At what point, as you asked earlier, do we make that call to switch from in-class to online education or, or a hybrid? Um, who makes that call? And then the other side is how long do we switch? Uh, can we do it for as little as one or two weeks and then get back to the classroom, or will it take longer? And unfortunately, I think a lot of this is, is not in our control. This is going to be determined by the virus. Um, that being said, what we're doing today, what we are enjoying on the weekends, is what is driving the numbers that we will see in September. So if we want kids to go to school in September, I think we do have to uh, improve our, our uh, following of guidelines and, and recommendations right now. Craig, there was chatter uh, over the last couple of days about a vaccine uh, coming out of the UK. Your thoughts on what you're hearing? So I, I guess first would be a qualifier that I think public expectations and scientific expectations may be quite different. Um, from a science point of view, this is moving at an unbelievable pace. Like This is fantastic news. I've seen nothing in the early reports of, of this vaccine in the UK, as well as a couple in the United States, to... to dampen my mood. They're, they're all actually very exciting. They seem to be generating the kind of immune response we, we want. Side effects, although reported, are quite minor. Uh, so I think we would all trade a headache for a couple days that is treatable with Tylenol uh, for an effective vaccine. 
Um, but I, I know the public, you know, when they hear of rapid vaccine de- development, is hoping for something this year. I really think we're going to see these vaccines in Canada by late spring, early summer of 2021. But again, I think all of the data so far is very encouraging. And more importantly, there are a number of different vaccines in the works. So we may have the option to not only pick and choose between vaccines, but where one may have a shortfall, the other may compensate it. We might have a very comprehensive package to offer the public uh, by mid-2021. Is there anything difficult about coming up for a vaccine, any more difficult coming up with a COVID-19 vaccine as there is uh, any other situation similar to it? Um, Or is it just a case of this takes time, especially the testing portion of it all? Yeah, it, it is a combination of both. So to put things in perspective, we do not have a current coronavirus vaccine in humans. And to put that in perspective, the common cold, not the flu, but the common cold is often caused by Mm. different types of coronavirus. We've never had a vaccine for the common cold. So this really is pushing new frontiers. But by mobilizing the global community and really putting the, the, the resources into it, we have identified a number of really good candidates. I think the public is more familiar with things like the flu shot every year. And really, for sort of comparison, we don't change the, the vaccine. We literally take a new protein from the new flu strain and plug it into last year's vaccine. Mm-hmm. So we just replace one block, but the vaccine is tested. We know it works. We know it's safe. So it's very simple to update the flu shot every year. This vaccine, we had no starting place. So I, I think, again, that there should be huge credit to these organizations that have got these vaccines into phase three human clinical trials safely. Craig, I've heard lots of people talk anecdotally uh, anecdotally how because this is going to be rushed, they're scared of it. They're more cautious about getting this when it does come out. How do we know, how can the public be reassured that when we finally do get something, that it will be safe? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I, I think what we are seeing is, is very good rigor on the safety. So this study right now out of, out of Oxford has uh, looked at over 1,000 people for the safety trials. I think the bigger question, and you know, it's something we don't have an answer for, is how well are they going to work? So I'm very confident that the vaccine we put together will be safe. The question is, is it fully protective? And odds are the first generation of vaccines likely won't be. But if they can take us from a situation where an ideal vaccine blocks infection, maybe the first generation doesn't block infection, but it prevents those people who are going to get really sick from developing an illness that requires hospitalization. Well, now we've converted this particularly nasty bug back to something that is more similar to a common cold. So we'll suffer through it for a few days. The vaccine won't stop us from getting infected, but we don't have to worry about people ending up in the intensive care unit. I think future generations and modifications of the first vaccine will get us you know, more protection that we, we don't even have to worry about getting sick. But I do think the first vaccines will be very effective at reducing hospitalizations, reducing that fear of severe illness, and putting this back into something we can manage within the community. Greg Jenny has been with us, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases, University of Calgary. Craig, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're more than welcome. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.